Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm graduate assistant Jacob Michael. Here with me is my fellow graduate assistant Jason Dawes, Gordon Institute director and founder Dr. Russ McCullough, and our Menard family professor of ethics and philosophy Dr. Justin Clark. All right well welcome everyone. Uh, today we're going to have uh, Jason kind of lead the way with a topic she brought up that's been in the news here recently and will continue to be in the news. I think well it's been in the news for the last uh, well, pretty much forever when we start talking oil. So uh, Jason is a part of the trans log industry in terms of transportation and getting products and other things from point A to point B. And her industry during this COVID crisis has certainly been disrupted. And so she's going to bring up some issues uh, that specifically came up here the last few weeks with some oil. So Jason, what do you got for us? Yeah, so I started noticing it and the rates that we pay our truck drivers to haul shipments uh, have started to go down a lot because fuel is going down in price. And so that's really kind of messing with the trucking industry. Like it's good in one sense because drivers don't have to pay as much fuel for fuel, but also a lot of the shippers know that. And so they are paying oh, less because they're they actually know trying that. to extract those gains. Yes, they which, are. You know, God bless them. That's what uh, that's what's part of our competitive system's all about. But okay. Yeah, and so <laughs> then you kind of start to wonder why why is gas going down so quickly? And I think one of the biggest uh, reasons for that is the oil war between Saudi and Russia that's going on. So they're definitely trying to push down prices and kind of gain more market share. And so they, they're kind of in a war over that right now. And it's really uh, hurting Russia in the long run here, um, trying to keep gambling with them on bringing prices down, gaining market share, and it's definitely hurting an industry. And I think the way it's affecting truck drivers is just a small portion of that. Yeah, it's interesting with the truck driver impact, for sure. I've heard uh, different stories, too, that I think is definitely highly related to your industry with truckers having to wait such a long time because the supply chain's disrupted. So they're in California, where they normally would have been able to drive up and pick up a container. There's like a long line. So truckers are sitting, idling their trucks, waiting to get new shipments because the flow of of materials that they can move across the country uh, has been disrupted. And so they're actually not winning out when in theory they could be um, because of like things like maybe lower gas prices and, and other things. Um, some truckers of course are on the clock, which wouldn't affect them, but it's really the small business type truckers that are driving for themselves and they are usually taking on the risk and not getting paid hourly or somehow compensated differently for it. And so that's yeah. been a, an interesting thing. Have and you experienced it, that with some of your drivers? Yeah, and it was also interesting. We thought that with everything going on with COVID-19 that they uh, it would be hard to find trucks, right? Fewer people would want to be out having contact, going a bunch of different places. Right. And so we thought it was going to raise prices, 
but actually since truck driving is an essential industry, there are a lot of drivers out there and a lot of their businesses that they ship for have closed down. And so there's actually a surplus of drivers and rates have gone down along with fuel because huh. of supply and demand there. Yeah, yeah, some real interesting supply and demand impacts. <clears throat> well, I've back to the, just to talk on the oil issue a little bit. I think Saudi Arabia has always been known as the, the leader there. Like I like to explain in my uh, econ 101 classes that they can stick a, a straw in the ground and go down about six inches and they can just start sucking oil up. So they are usually the least cost, uh, the low cost provider uh, because of how easy it is for them to tap into the market. That said, their power, pricing power and otherwise has been limited because they can't jack up prices higher than what the next competitor could potentially pull it out of the ground for. So in the United States, the uh, development of fracking and horizontal drilling has made it easier and more cost-effective for us in the United States to compete on a global scale. And um, we have successfully done that. So we are uh, much more insulated from external forces <clears throat> than we were before. Um, that said, it, uh, it, it is a global market, and so we're always going to be the overall supply and demand for that commodity is going to impact things. And so, yeah, the, the Russia uh, deal kind of had this double whammy is the way I heard it uh, explained, that Russia and Saudis we're doing a kind of a price battle and bumping up production. But then at the same time, COVID hit and took away um, some of the demand. So we had an increase in supply and a decrease in demand. And that's why we're getting to enjoy here at Ottawa, Kansas anyway, $1.49 per gallon gas prices. Um, so that's certainly a nice, a nice side benefit. So, yeah. So Justin, what are you thinking? I'm just wondering what, you know, Russ, I know you always have your economist hat on here, but um, what you <laughs> I can't about, take it off. It's actually permanently yeah. fixed to my head. Part so. of the PhD process is suturing it to your skull, right? <laughs> so we know that, you know, like you said, it's, it's very low cost for Saudi Arabia to extract oil from the ground, but the development of fracking has, has really decreased the cost for the U.S. to produce oil. And we've become a net exporter um, in the last few years because of fracking and, um, you know, these new developments that allow us to pull oil out of like sh uh, shale and, and sand and things like that where we couldn't before. But if this price war increases the global price of oil to below that price, um, to below what it costs us to extract it, even though that's a pretty low price now, that could really put a lot of the domestic producers of, of oil out of business. And then that makes us once again, reliant on external sources for oil um, at the expense of our domestic energy production. So I'm wondering if you think that uh, there is a place for something like tariffs, if you see something like Saudi Arabia doing a kind of predatory pricing to in the sh in the short term, you know, in a two year period, uh, knock domestic production out. And we think they might even knock our domestic production out and, and then jack up uh, international prices. Okay, all of a sudden my hackles went up 
<clears throat> when you said, you know, the word tariff, like uh, that is not not good in my world. And, and I'll be happy to explain uh, some of the problems I could have. But, but before I do that, our domestic producers might be sitting idle, but they won't really, the resources won't be put out of business. Maybe there's a chance a small producer would actually have to close their doors. But then what does that mean? they would sell their equipment and their oil rigs or their land, whatever resources they were using to another company. And so uh, my point with that is that as soon as the, those oil prices start to jump up, then we'll have idle, idle capital that will be put back into place right away. And so it's not like we're restarting the industry, so to speak. Um, we are well positioned as world oil prices. I don't care if oil prices are low, you know, our people can sit idle for a while and, and of course, they're not going to like it and they will pop, they will uh, lobby their politicians to say, oh, we're losing jobs. But man, everybody in the oil industry seems to have buco bucks the last time I checked and they're, they're actually pretty good savers too. So I think, you know, if you've got a person who's a good saver and they've got good equipment, Yes, they still have to work for their money. They're not sitting back, but the, the oil riggers and the, the people that I've met in that industry, which isn't extensive, by the way, um, I think they can sit back and <clears throat> wait for those prices to go up and, and they can, uh, they'll, they'll be just fine and uh, ride out the losses because they're, they are sitting in a pretty good uh, financial position uh, generally. And so we'll see jobs start to come back. Um, <clears throat> maybe a person who's working for an oil place gets laid off and they go start to do construction or something else. Um, and again, I'm, I'm speaking outside of COVID, right? That they have to, well, now we got to find an essential job, which construction actually would be uh, potentially one of those. I saw some guys out roofing here in Ottawa, Kansas today. So uh, those types of jobs are out there. So I, um, in terms of going to a tariff, um, we immediately get into uh, tariff fights, as we've seen with Trump's fight with China on steel. Um, so we just kind of go down this path that us as a global leader in markets and knowing the benefits that they bring um, to, to parties involved, we can handle the losses to some Americans in different ways. So it's kind of similar to this COVID crisis that uh, we can maybe um, provide oil producers uh, some sort of subsidies or job retraining or extra unemployment, you know, whatever it is, but something that's much more targeted for the harm of our Americans rather than disrupting uh, the entire market. Um, Jason, what were you thinking? I was going to say, and that's kind of a really great comparison between Saudi and the U.S., is that Saudi's oil company is owned by the government and so the government's revenue relies heavily on the amount of money that they make from these oil companies. Whereas the U.S., it's just an, like it's an industry. It's a big industry, but it's something that will ebb and flow and it won't necessarily affect big picture as much as where Saudi relies on it more heavily because of that government control. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, same thing, the explosion of, uh, and, and downfall of Venezuela is another um, case in point where the government more or less, I don't know what the fraction is, but heavily relied on oil sales because the government did own the resources. So as you move into a more socialist um, society where the government owns more and more of the resources, 
then they'll start to build up their infrastructure and their budgets around a certain amount of revenue coming in from that. And uh, Jason, I think you put it nicely that here in the United States, where if you have a market forces where there's a number of uh, producers of oil, which there is in the oil industry, as far as I understand it, it's not like just one big oil company controls everything. There's really a number of smaller uh, producers that are the ones that are extracting the oil from the ground. So we might have a case where a couple of those producers go out of business, uh, which is sad, sad for them and whatever, but um, it doesn't cause a disruption for police and roads like you're describing with Saudi Arabia or Venezuela, where now the revenue that's not coming in can't go towards other things. So keeping a, a decentralized competitive system that we have in markets uh, that's just one example of some of the benefits we have with that, as opposed to a more centrally planned system where the government controls uh, more of those activities and resources. All right, well, this looks like a good spot to uh, go for a break. And uh, after break, we'll uh, continue on with some other issues that we have related to uh, the crisis and the economy, and maybe we'll sneak a God in there somehow. I like to weave in, since this is the Faith and Economics podcast, uh, well, well, maybe we can find a Bible verse or something. So we'll see you in 30 seconds. Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at or call us at 785 the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Okay, welcome back. Um, so I teased you with figuring out some sort of oil quote, and I found one. You know, everything's in that Bible. Uh, the truth is there, so here's me pushing the envelope. There is actually quite a bit of oil in, in the Old Testament, but I, the one that I thought was uh, closest to oil, or maybe it's an oil-based product, if that's fair, listeners. Um, so <clears throat> this is Matthew uh, 26.6. So uh, Jesus uh, was at Bethany, the house of Simon the leper. Uh, this is the ESV version. A woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. So that's the oil connection here, folks. And she poured it on his head as he reclined on the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste, right? So Jesus is allowing waste. Like, he, what kind of an economist is he, right, that we're wasting this product? So 
And so for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. So, um, you know, maybe the utility gains, the, the happiness gains of the poor were better than, you know, the happiness gained uh, to Jesus here. Well, I, I, as Jesus does so many times, he flips this over and says, but Jesus, uh, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So kind of some interesting words and different ways we can honor uh, Jesus with some oil in this case, right? So we got the use of oil. So I think I cleverly saved the day for the Faith and Economics podcast and brought uh, a connection here of uh, oil into things. So uh, to get back to our discussion, um, Jacob, you had some comments you were thinking about? Yeah, just talking about the the amount of oil that I guess Saudi Arabia is pulling out of the ground. Um, I was listening to a podcast about it from the Wall Street Journal, I think it was last week, and it was just talking about how they, they're actually running out of places to even store it. Like they uh, they contracted like, it was like 20 or 25 <laughs> tankers just to be able to hold the amount of oil that they were producing every day. So they hmm. just have ships floating around with oil on them. Wow. And so obviously that's increasing their cost. So any uh, <clears throat> benefits that they uh, might have had from doing it in a more efficient means is going to raise costs. And uh, I don't know, that could kind of flip some things upside down in a weird way. Justin, uh, what, what were you thinking here? Uh, what would be the breaking point if people who were in these oil tankers started getting the upper hand on storage costs or something? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, look, if demand plummets and uh, the, the rate of extraction of oil continues apace, uh, you are going to end up very quickly with more oil on your hands than you can store. I mean, you can think of it in terms of like being a rabbit breeder, right? If you're selling <laughs> X amount of rabbits a week and you've got your rabbits breeding, you know, you're charging $5 a rabbit because um, people want those rabbits. That's great. But all of a sudden, if the demand for rabbits dries up, your house is overrun with rabbits. And pretty soon, uh, you're going to be paying people to take these rabbits off your hands. Just please take them out off my hands. So, uh, I mean, it would be hilarious if you we end up with a situation where we have you know, the price for oil becomes negative. Uh, right. You know, because you have Saudi Arabia paying people to take the oil off their hands. Yeah, negative market price of oil, which of course would never show up on the board of trade that way. It would probably show up as a let's let's call it a a ten dollar price of oil, but they're paying twenty dollars per barrel for storage. So it's actually a ne effectively a net negative price of negative ten. But you're absolutely right, right? I mean. You know, can prices go negative? Well, usually not, but the economic impacts of them can. And so, you know, we're seeing people talk about negative interest rates. And so that, that's kind of a bizarre world to think about. Yeah, if, if interest rates are the price of money, um, then <clears throat> negative interest rate seems insane. But yet, you know, here we are. So, yeah. Um, and it, and then what's different there is I think conceptually it's easy to think about storing oil like there's a real cost you know of a barrel or a container or a shipping container whatever it is uh, to actually do it but why do we need to store money you know what's, what's the deal with that that you would pay people and and so 
Um, the answer is a little bit uh, slippery, but if you really have a premium for keeping yourself liquid and the availability to get cash, um, then you might pay somebody to keep your money for you and that would be effectively a negative interest rate. I mean, one example would be if you're in a, some sort of corrupt government situation and you don't have access to um, other normal banking channels, then you might pay somebody, hey, hold this money for me. And you're paying a, essentially a negative interest rate even though you're giving them the money. Um, so it's kind of a bizarre thing. Normally we think the floor for interest is basically zero. And um, that's usually generally the case, but this negative interest rate talk uh, does seem to creep up every now and then. So Jason, um, what was the direction you had a couple comments here on maybe pollution? Uh, yeah, so I, I read a funny article that came across about how since everybody's quarantined, social distancing, fewer people are going out. And in countries where pollution is high, like India, the pollution has gone sit down so much that they can uh, see the Himalayas again. And it's been like decades since they've been able to see it. <laughs> and so maybe maybe that's a little bit of a plus. <laughs> a little silver lining, yes, that uh, economists call pollution, generally speaking, a negative externality. So it's it's like we uh, get a lot of benefit from having a market transaction, but um, the buyer and the seller get to agree on a price. Maybe it's oil, just since we're on the oil topic. And so they're exchanging oil at $40, but the production or the extraction of oil ends up causing some sort of toxin to go into the environment and clouds up our view of the, of the mountain. Then that is a true negative external cost that, somebody who's not using the oil has to bear. The person who would normally have a view of the mountain is incurring a cost that they wouldn't otherwise have and they have no part to the transaction of the oil directly. And so the answer to that uh, is a property rights question and can be kind of uh, interesting in trying to solve it. Um, <clears throat> generally, some I guess maybe a little bit bigger government or kind of the mainstream principles approach would be to just tax. Okay, let's just put a tax on uh, the oil so that less oil is produced and then therefore less pollution and maybe we can see the mountain a little bit more. Um, in reality, we can't measure very effectively the person who has diminished uh, benefit or, or a cost, so to say, of, of not seeing the mountain. Like, what's that worth to them? Oh, I think it's worth a hundred bucks. Or, oh, I think it's $500. I'd be willing to pay a thousand dollars to see that mountain every day, right? Like, how do we actually measure that cost? So uh, a Nobel Prize winner, Jim Buchanan, uh, who's famous in public uh, choice theory, uh, has written extensively on that in the past that uh, it's really difficult to measure those sorts of costs. And so usually the government will screw it up um, that whatever we do tax won't be the right amount of the tax. And in fact, we will end up causing uh, more problems than we are eliminating uh, by taking that approach. And so um, other effective means, though, there, there can be uh, more direct measures again, kind of the theme that we've gone to that uh, the, the, the oil producer, maybe there can be some sort of tax on the direct emissions that they have to clean up their act um, as part of the environmental process. So there might be better ways than just a, some sort of straight oil tax uh, to address 
the uh, pollution concerns. So I'd assume there's less plastic going out. Maybe there's not. I don't know. You know, China uh, is, gets the finger pointed at them for causing <clears throat> the straws in the turtles' noses and the, the ocean bags uh, floating out there, the ocean or the bag islands of uh, our little uh, Walmart plastic bags that we use for consumption and, and that uh, most of what we do in the United States doesn't contribute to that. It's mostly coming from other places. So that's another externality and negative uh, cost or uh, a negative impact that we absorb uh, here in the United States that's out of our control, but yet we're taking a bunch of actions to use uh, other forms of carrying bags. And those other forms are usually more costly so maybe it's 10 times the cost to use a environmentally friendly bag as opposed to the good old plastic. And uh, that is probably disproportionately hurting the poor more than it is the rich. So if we care about um, people uh, in the lower levels of income, sometimes these policies end up uh, hitting them harder than it does the more affluent. And so um, those are situations at the Gortney Institute anyway, especially with our concern for poverty and the poor, that we want to um, try to make sure we're always looking out for them with different types of policy implementation. So, all right. Well, anything else for the good of the cause here? Once again, solved most of the problems of the universe, but next week there'll be other problems that we'll have to address. And uh we will bring them as eloquently and as in a fun way, hopefully, for you listeners. So on behalf of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University, I'd like to thank you all for listening. Um, if you can, go to your uh, <clears throat> podcast source or the iStore or iTunes and give us a five-star rating if you think we deserve it. That helps people find us when they do searches on faith and economics, for instance and helps us rise through the, the ranks of the search engines. And we certainly appreciate your support and uh, listening and doing what you do. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.